Hello, and welcome to Faith Facts with Father Howard. I'm Lindsay, here with Father Howard, and on today's episode, we are discussing Immaculate Conception. So let's get started. Hey, Lindsay, uh, always, as, as usual, always a pleasure to be able to get together and, and to talk about uh, a, a lot of these things that are part of our church that a lot of times either people don't have an opportunity to talk about or or don't even know necessarily some of the questions uh, that that we pose and, 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 and we look at when we have these little sessions. And so it really is uh, an opportunity to, to to be able to hopefully, uh, in clarifying and sharing some of these, that we're able to clarify, I should say, uh, some of the things that, that we really are about when it comes to being the Catholic Church. And I think just before we, we connect specifically with the Immaculate Conception, the, the, the Solemnity, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, is that just to put it in a general category that first and foremost, any holy day, no matter which one it is, it's ultimately about God, always. You know, too often we can, we can get caught up in, in facts and in statistics and in all sorts of things that really are not, a lot of times are not even based in reality, <laughs> but are based on, on sometimes, you know, a particular culture or circumstance. Uh, an example would be is that, you know, the belief that somehow Jesus was born on December 25th. Is that maybe, but at one time in the church history, it was June, and another time it was July, another time it was November, eventually settled on no December 25th. And so it's always good for us to remember that ultimately these things are about God, about God's love uh, for us, about God's relationship with us, and about our relationship with with God. And I like to say is that more than anything else, anything else, they speak to us of truths rather than simply facts. Are there facts involved in all of this? Absolutely. No question about that. But what's more important is they speak to us of truths. You know, Easter speaks to us of a truth. Uh, Christmas speaks to us of a truth. Uh, Immaculate Conception speaks to us of a truth rather than necessarily all sorts of facts that, that at times can get in the way of being able to, to celebrate the truth that we're trying to uh, unpack or the truth we're trying to explore. And these truths, when you think about them, these truths are, are not comprehend, com- able to be comprehended by humans, not completely anyway. Because what they are is they're speaking about things that are rooted in the divine. And, and, and though we can plumb some of the depths of that to a degree, is that we simply are not able to comprehend with our human minds and such the, the depths of God, the divinity. And, and so these truths really try to help us understand the, the divine, the mystery of the divine action in our lives, um, and, and we have a limited ability to do so. So it's, it's always uh, sometimes worrisome for me when, when people point at something or, or point at a date or something like that and saying, well, no, it was exactly like this because we're then losing the sense that the divinity of God is so much bigger than, than our 
facts and our figures and our whatever it might be. And, and it's these truths that really can help us to explore that, can help us to plumb some of those depths. And, and that's really what we're looking at uh, when we talk about, you know, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Now, one thing uh, to remember is that the Immaculate Conception is about Mary being conceived without sin. Yeah, I always get that wrong because the reading is always the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. Correct. So you're like, no, I think it's about Mary, but but this is about Jesus. So, <laughs> and and they use again that that scripture. They so often these scriptures are used because they speak of what had to take place, how God had to be involved for someone like Mary, this, this, this young woman, girl, who was invited by the divine through the angel to do something so extraordinary that we look at that and saying, you know, it's not possible to respond to those kinds of things, to those invitations that God gives us. It's simply not even uh, possible to respond to that without somehow the influence of God. Again, it's going back to, so, you know, looking at the truths that these are trying to help us to understand rather than necessarily what simply what the story is saying. But you're right. A lot of people get that confused. They think it's about Jesus, you know, being conceived without uh, without sin or anything, which, of course, we believe. But, but that's is, in March, but, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's in March. Holy Days in March. Of course, exactly nine months before December 25th. Mm-hmm. Only in the scriptures does that ever work. Um, <laughs> is that, but this is about the belief um, that this was Mary was conceived without sin. And this, this feast is probably more than any other feast uh, was filled with controversy, uh, some of the greatest saints that we have in our history uh, argued against this belief um, and, and did so not out of any kind of dishonor or any kind of lack of love for Mary. But it was more the underpinnings that they talked about when it came to someone being conceived without sin, you know, other than someone being the divine you know, Lord, is that does one need you know, Jesus then if they have no sin? And that we'll t- touch on that a little bit. But what's interesting about this about this feast is that long before the title of Immaculate Conception was ever used or necessarily even thought of, um, the early church uh, fathers and writers uh, regarded Mary as the holiest and most blessed of all disciples. She, from the early centuries, Mary always had a special place. Always always was regarded as being, again, one of the most holy and one of the most blessed of all of Christ's disciples. So this this goes way beyond before there were any, any kind of titles and labels and feasts and all sorts of things like that. So what does immaculate mean? Pure, just being, pure, without sin. Because I guess, yeah, in normal conversation, that's immaculate. That you know, that's, whatever. But 
It, it loses its meaning when you talk about Immaculate Mary because we say it so often, you know, you forget what it actually means. Exactly, you know, and, and how easily sometimes these words or these concepts kind of uh, find themselves, you know, in our own culture, in the secular culture, mm -hmm. and as a consequence can lose, can lose some of the meaning, can lose some of the significance of, of what we're saying and what we say we believe. But you're right, you know, you're very, you're very right with that. When looking at the little bit of the origins of this, History, I love it. I love it, yeah, I got it. <laughs> Is that basically, New Testament says nothing about Mary's birth or her early life. Nothing whatsoever. First time she really comes on the scene is, you know, when we start talking about the Christmas story. Okay? Um, so, uh, we we basically don't know anything. There, there are a lot of stories that are rooted in personal cultural piety. There are legends and stories found in the what is called the Proto-Evangelium of James. Uh, this is these are some of the writings uh, that that you know are written around the times of gospels and such, but stories and legends that that grew up for lots of diff different reasons. Sometimes there is a root of truth to it all. Uh, a lot of times it's really, Legends that have cropped up uh, for lots of different reasons. Again, like any myth or legend, is that at the core is usually some truth there. Uh, but basically, we don't know anything about Mary's early life whatsoever. Popular piety believed that her birth was miraculous, similar similar to the births of like Isaac with, with Abraham and Sarah that they were an old age and, and at the age of 90-something, you know, God says to Sarah, um, y you know, you're going to have a baby. And Sarah laughs. And, Poor Sarah. Yeah, and, and Sarah, God says, why do you laugh? And Sarah says, I didn't laugh. And God says, you did too. Uh, he's like, I heard it. Yeah, don't diss God. And so Isaac is born out of the barrenness of old age. And you also have, for example, like John the Baptist. Same kind of story. Mm -hmm. Is that these are stories, myths, that, that speak, you know, however, whatever the kernels of truth that are there, they speak of the fact that God is involved. And I think that's what we have to remember. Again, and not let the details get in the way of the truth being expressed. And so you could say the same thing with Samson, who was had a, the miraculous birth. So I thought you were going to say miraculous hair. No, 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 <laughs> miraculous birth. And so you have so the popular piety said that you know uh, this was a miraculous birth. And what's also interesting is that it was this popular piety believed that Anne and Joachim uh, knew that. She was going to be the mother of the Messiah from the very beginning. Now that's um, a pretty wow. bold statement for for your daughter. You know, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. Uh, it is also believed in popular piety that uh, because of, of Mary also realized that she was going to be the mother of the Savior from very 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 early age, and as a consequence, she was then presented in the temple, which was kind of the 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 rootedness or the the beginnings you might say of a, another feast of the presentation 
the Feast of the Presentation in November 21st, and that's the presentation of Mary mm -hmm. in the temple. Oh. And so uh, this stuff is all, all kind of tied together. Because once you start, you know, to believe kind of the foundational pieces, then there are other pieces that grow. And we start looking at, you know, some of these other pieces. I've never, I've never heard that stuff that you just mentioned that her parents knew and she yeah. knew from an early age. So that would almost make the context of Gabriel coming and asking her the question a little different because she was ready for the question. Well, exactly, exactly. And, and, but that's where, you know, it's like, don't make, try to make too much sense out of it. <laughs> Because when you think about the writers of scriptures, they were not trying to make necessarily sense or, or things logical. Yeah. They were, again, they were trying to bring out the truth. They were trying to express that in the stories. And, you know, whether it's the story of the birth of the Messiah itself, because not all of the Gospels have those. Right. As we know, just in Mark, this, this, week, this past weekend in Mark, and there's there's no crib, no camels, no donkeys, no oxen, no sheep, no shepherds. It's you know, be ready, stay awake, be alert. They didn't have time for stories. To tell stories, you have to have time to tell stories. For Mark, you don't have time to tell stories because it's going to happen right away. And so stories were not important. For the other gospel writers, a different circumstance, different community, they needed to tell stories. Yeah. And so these stories, again, rooted in popular beliefs, were stories that spoke of, you know, God's blessings, spoke of God's involvement, spoke of the mysterious and incredible ways of God. See, this is where I'm like, I want to know how many siblings Mary had and what year was she born? <laughs> <laughs> See, and all of that, all of that, would have been irrelevant. I well, but I like knowing these things. Well, I know I because I'm I'm with you on that. <laughs> I I'm right there with you. Um, we just we just don't know because and and that's that's part of the hard thing because part part of it because our culture likes those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. We like to know whether it's about you know the latest rock star or the whatever it might be. We like to know that background simply wasn't important of that time and age. Or is it because she was a woman, so it wasn't important? Well, that could have certainly played a part, too, you know. That that's, could have certainly played a part. I don't want to put too much on that. <laughs> be, but, you know, it's like anything else. You know, the, the these these writings and such, for the most part, would have been written by men, and mm. they would have been certainly part of the culture. Certainly sure. were part of the culture that they were part of. Sorry, we digress. We have digressed, yes. Okay. <laughs> Let's get back on track. So, Immaculate conception. Part of this, the understanding of Mary's role not only was shaped by <clears throat> popular belief, which certainly it was. Mm -hmm. And I think we that's something we can't re forget because part of the whole story of its origins and everything really in so many ways was shaped by popular piety. And, and in many ways the theologians had to catch up. Uh, and, and she was like the celebrity of her day, <laughs> probably. Uh, so, but not only by popular belief, but also by theological discussion. Um, Augustine, already in the in 430 A.D., uh, when he was dealing with a couple of heresies, uh, he was hesitant to say that that Mary was born in sin as all others. I mean, he came close. 
but he was hesitant to say that. So from the very beginning, early centuries, there was already this, this buying in of the popular beliefs and such and, and what was held to be true by, by a lot of folks. And so the theologians were, were not unaffected by this. So theologians after Augustine and such continued to struggle uh, with this question uh, as far as uh, whether what this would mean, you know, that, that she was immediately conceived and, and never sinned. That um, what is what what are the ramifications of that? Remember, we at that point we have a whole theology of sin and Adam and Eve and all of that, uh, and the fact is Mary is human. She is not divine. She is human. Jesus is son of God. He is both human and divine. And, and you know, that was not lost, that Mary was human. So when we say that, that she was immaculately conceived, what does that say about our, our basic theology that says all of us are touched by original sin? What does that say to that, you know, when you have so much of the foundation? It'd be like, you know, pulling out the entire first floor of the Empire State Building and saying somehow it's got to stand. And then it's like, you can't do that. So they, they really, they really, really wrestled with that. And not only this, is that the whole aspect of the Immaculate Conception was also tied up with, you know, the... Of the uh, other feasts of the Assumption, uh, Mary, Mother of God. I mean, this again. This was all all tightly, you know, knitted together, and so one is kind of based on the other. Yeah, when you think about it, a lot of our holy days are Mary days. Our Mary days. You're right. Um, and then, so how could any being be born without effects of the original sin? And this is where some of our great saints said, "We love Mary. Don't get us wrong." But this is not possible. This is simply, so you had people like uh, St. John Chrysostom. You had St. Bernard of Clairvaux. You had Thomas Aquinas. Ooh. You're talking big guns. Big guns. Yeah. You know, of saying, you know, that somehow sinlessness detracts then from Christ as Savior. If she has no sin, then there would be those who would say, she doesn't need him. Hmm. Doesn't need him. However, there's a thought. <laughs> yeah. However, again, so you have this, but but even though you had these major these major uh, theologians and saints of our church, you know, speak to this, is that popular piety was really driving some of this, and so uh, that there was the popular piety of. Mary truly was born without sin. She never sinned. She was immaculate from the very moment she was conceived all the way through. Which is a lot for anyone to live up to. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, so largely from this devotion, the feast begins to be shaped and formed more and more. And so by the 700s, you have pretty much the basic skeleton of the feast spread you know, throughout the church wasn't completely accepted more so in the eastern church than in the western church the church to rome but um but it it was there the seeds the buds and everything were there <clears throat> the popular piety being so strong and tenacious you might say 
And by popular piety, meaning, you know, how people prayed, what people prayed, how uh, the days people remembered, uh, how they remembered it, rituals that grew around all of that, that was so tenacious that uh, basically by 1050, um, you know, that, that the feast through England and Europe and all of that uh, finally found its way to Rome and started to take root in the Roman Church. It was slow to be accepted by the Roman Church. Again, there was this hesitancy because of, of the arguments that, that were rather persuasive when it came to what being immaculately conceived would mean. And so it wasn't until literally 1477 that it was officially accepted as a feast in Rome. Not a feast of or a day of obligation. It was accepted. Eventually, it was placed in the Roman calendar on December 8th. And then it wasn't until, and we don't realize you when you think of the history of our church, it wasn't until 1854. Relatively recently. Yes, when you think of the his, history of the church, is that Pius IX finally defined it as a, do, as a dogma, and it became a holy day of obligation. So the history of it, the, I should say the, the definitive statement on it, is really relatively young when you consider a lot of the others, mm -hmm. the other things that, that we have dealt with. What's the meaning of it? Really, when it comes right down to it, it's a feast about redemption. That's really what it is. It's about God's plan of salvation. Going back to my opening statement, ultimately these things are about God and in and, and God's mysterious ways. Um, Mary, when you think of this feast, uh, it, it takes on a sense that Mary is the image of what the church should be. And, and it reminds us sometimes how flawed we are, how far we have to go. But it also reminds us that a human being, you know, becomes the image in a sense of what the church is called to be. It's also about being a model of discipleship of what a genuine disciple should be and is able to be, you know, being human and, 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 and all of that. It's also about, you know, again, going back, God's involvement in the midst of all of this. And it's part of God's plan. <clears throat> she was, um, you know, be, and because she would be the mother of our Lord, uh, Mary, there are those who would say on the other side of the argument, because... This was still being wrestled with. It was uh, Duns Scotus, a Franciscan theologian, who would say that because she was to be the mother of the Lord, Mary, more than anyone else, would need Christ as Redeemer. More than anyone, she needed to have, you might say, Jesus intercede. You know, one cannot be immaculate without the divine intercession. And so... In many ways, this kind of reflection by Dun Scotus really put to rest because otherwise before that it was just, just they were struggling. You know, even though it had been defined, mm -hmm. they still struggle. And it was an argument and it would crop up every so often, you know. Uh, it, it, it's like Bigfoot or something like that. <laughs> it never really goes away. And just when you think that finally we put it to rest, it would crop up in different mm -hmm. ways. And so, but this, this seemingly did really um, 
put put that to rest. Um, and it was interesting how even in the United States, <clears throat> um, the bishops in the United States proclaimed the solemnity uh, in 1846 in one wow. of the plenary uh, sessions of, of uh, plenary council of Baltimore. Um, it was 1884 where it was approved in the United States as a holy day. And in 1885, Rome finally approved it to be a holy day of obligation in, in the United States. So it's not everywhere. Uh, holy day. Again, not necessarily. It is... It's one of these things that the, the bishops really have the authority to kind of move these days around. It's on the calendar and yeah. such as that, as far as that goes. But sometimes they're moved to, uh, <clears throat> sometimes they're moved to Sundays. Sometimes they're moved, you know, sometimes the obligation might be lifted. True. Um, <clears throat> so. But isn't it a, a even more special day in the U.S. because is she like the. She, the patron of, of, the, of United the United States. States. Yes. I mean, I went to school at Catholic University right next door to the shrine, National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. So the Basilica. Sorry, Basilica. Yeah, Basilica. So I know it's a big thing. <laughs> it, it, it is. You know, it is. And so it's, it's one of, but it's one of those things where the history of it is, is though the, the seeds of it, you mm -hmm. know, has, has a lot of controversy, the history of when things were finally you know, put down on paper and and, and, and embraced mm -hmm. is relatively recent compared to so many other things. And it's, it's, uh, it, it really has a large part to play. Again, when we start to talk about what, what is, what are, what are they trying to teach us? What are they trying to help us understand? There is no human way possible for us to understand what it means to be immaculately conceived. There is no human way that we can possibly understand, you know, what it would take for someone to say their yes at such a young age, and I would say at such a great cost. No one can possibly understand, you know, the mysterious ways of why God would do you know, uh, what God does. And, and regardless if we know any of the facts or not, the truths are is that this is about God's intervention. This is about God's presence. This is about the absolute need we have for God. You know, as people of faith, if, if, if somehow we are to be those disciples, if we are to be, if we are to help bring that sense of the church's presence to the world. Um, now, you know, people at times can poke fun of at this and people can, you know, uh, all sorts of, of ridiculous things, you know, can, can be said about it. But see, that's where I believe when we really look at this, it's, it's not about all of those facts and stuff. We let that, that stuff get in the way. It's about the truths that are being expressed in the best human way we can. And, and so this is the way we put it. And hopefully, hopefully, you know, as time goes on, we continue to uh, discover and, and maybe sometimes rediscover or add to or, you know, uh, 
maybe plumb the depths more of, of, a, of a tremendous feast like this, and in doing so, come to grow in an understanding of this incredible God that we, we believe in. So the, the feast day, um, it, you know, really has a lot to offer us. Just a, a little bit more in the sense that it's, the feast even in uh, the United States, you know, predates certainly the, the you know, the 1800s and such as that. Um, when you think of the, uh, the, how our country was colonized and such, certainly the, the French and the Spanish uh, had huge devotions to Mary, huge devotions. And so uh, you look at that and the number of places that were named after, you know, the Immaculate Conception, Concepcion, you know, Missouri, in Missouri, you have, uh, you know, rivers named after, you have, and, and in fact, the one of the earliest, if not the earliest chapel built in the United States, uh, it built in 1573 in, in St. Augustine in Florida, uh, was uh, the named the uh, Convento de Immaculada uh, Concepcion. And so it's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, um, uh, chapels that, that were built. Still Just, exist? Uh, it still exists, yes, it still exists. Just a, a quote from the... Um, this is a marvelous little book that... that that was written by the National Conference of Catholic Bishops. Uh, it was written in the 80s and uh, still has a lot of valuable information. It's called The Holy Days in the United States, History, Theology, Celebration, written uh, by the Bishops' Committee on the Liturgy, National Conference of Catholic Bishops. But they have a quote in here that I think is, um, that really has a lot to offer. The Immaculate Conception of Mary, which the Church celebrates with the three readings at Mass, proclaims her and our predestination in Christ. God alone overcomes the sin of Adam and Eve through the mystery of his son's birth. Suffering, death, and resurrection. Mary, the mother of Christ, the mother of God, is instrumental in the fulfillment of God's plan. The liturgy celebrates and teaches this great mystery. I think that's... it's certainly significant in uh, what what we celebrate here and and what it has to offer us that it's as I mentioned ultimately about God and the Immaculate Conception is one of those marvelous feast days that helps us to to be reminded of that and maybe to explore the marvelous ways that God continues to work in our lives also that God has not stopped working in our lives, uh, not you know because you know all of a sudden because we sin, is that our sins do not stop God, and the Immaculate Conception you know shows that no sin stops God at all, <laughs> you know, um, but it takes God and and this is a good reminder and a, a good reminder also of Mary's part in all of that. Also, it can again reaffirm our part in salvation history that continues to this very day. Good way to celebrate. Awesome. Well, that's a lot of information about Immaculate Conception. Um, if you're interested in more about Mary, we did a podcast previously about the Rosary, and we did one about liturgical year, which we touched on some other holy days. You might want to check out back in the podcast feed. 
Otherwise, I think we're going to leave it there for today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed that, and we will see you next time.